Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? James Davidson Hunter wrote the book Culture War, and he talks about how this term, culture wars, really came into use after the 1960s. Early on, it had to do with feminism, ERA, and abortion, but the culture wars have waged over many other issues in the intervening decades. And if you're at all aware, you'll know that our cultural landscape does seem to be rapidly shifting and changing on a number of key issues, especially LGBTQ issues. And this is creating yet another opportunity for Christians to argue and bicker about whether we should be culture warriors, whether the culture war is a good thing, and how we participate in said war. The culture war is ever with us, and you should expect that in a polarized, tribalized society that we live in. People have their beliefs, and they want to see their beliefs propagated in the nation. They want to see their beliefs championed and sometimes even written into law. But where the culture war has popped up now that everybody is talking about is not in the United States, but instead in Australia. Australia. Here's the background. There's an Australian rules football team called Essendon, and they needed to hire a leader of their organization. So they went out in the marketplace and they found a guy that they thought would be excellent. He had an incredible resume and a set of credentials. So they hired him. His name's Andrew Thorburn. Within 30 hours, he was forced to resign from that position. 30 hours. That's how long it took for it to become public that Andrew Thorburn was not just the new CEO of this Australian rules football team, but he was also also the chairman of the board of an evangelical church called City on a Hill. And that evangelical church held beliefs that we would call biblically orthodox about abortion and about homosexuality. And because Australian rules football is a very pro-LGBTQ sport, Andrew Thorburn was given the choice by his new employers. He could either keep his position as leader of this franchise, or he could remain chairman of the board at his church. Now, that's an incredible position to be in. Andrew Thorburn chose to resign and said he was being mistreated. He wanted to stay with his church. Now, he hasn't talked to the media. He's refused to talk to the media about it. And so his pastor, a guy named Guy Mason, went on a news show, I think 60 Minutes. It's called Sunrise. He's being interviewed by a guy named David Koch. And if you watch the interview, the interviewer, David Koch, is very rude to the pastor. He tries to put him on the defensive and succeeds in doing so. Now, the pastor refuses to answer most of the questions about whether his church is homophobic and about whether it's bigoted. Instead, he keeps repeating the phrase, our church is for love and life, love and life. It's like those were the talking points that someone gave him before he went on, and he just kept repeating it. So what's he doing? Well, he's trying to be nice, and he was. He was trying to keep his cool, and he did. He's trying to be gentle, mission accomplished, but what he didn't do is speak clearly or 
or persuasively about the biblical sexual ethic. So if there's one extreme, which is Guy Mason in the culture wars, let's be nice, let's be inoffensive, but let's not be clear about our views. There's maybe another extreme. There was a big national event called NatCon that was bringing together speakers, thinkers from the new right, whatever that is, it's a bit unclear right now. And one of the speakers was a senator, Josh Hawley. And Josh's speech, the beginning of it is actually all pretty great, normal, biblical, good stuff. It's not until he gets to the very end of his speech that he begins to say some maybe more controversial things. He tells the story of a bunch of Christians who are living in Alexandria during the reign of Julian the Apostate. Now, this was a guy who was known for persecuting Christians. And so they're worshiping together in front of this big pagan idol. And the thing that they expect to happen happens. A Roman soldier shows up, he's got his axe sharpened, and they think, all right, this is it. We're going to be martyred. We're going to pay with our life to worship Jesus. But then the Roman soldier does something unexpected. He scales the idol, climbs up to the top of it, gets his axe out, and chops the head off of the idol. Now, Senator Hawley's point is pretty straightforward. Not that we should go and enact violence against people who disagree with us, but that the proper response to the culture wars is to fight, to get your axe out and knock the head off. Yeah, so you have two different approaches here. You have the fight approach or you have the be nice, be kind approach. But you kind of have to think, is there another way? Are those the only two options? And Christian Twitter, Christian Substack, Christian journals, Christian evangelical elites have all been talking about this issue from mere orthodoxy and first things to David French and Aaron Wren and Tim Keller. Everybody's been weighing in. Some people call it the winsome wars. In other words, should Christians try to be winsome or should we take a different approach given the way our country is going? (laughs) And what in the world does winsome mean? Now, it's important to note, Christians, I mean, this shouldn't shock anyone, we've had to, for literal centuries, figure out how do we interact with government, with politics, and with culture. And there have been many different takes on that. Now, what we're about to do is a radical oversimplification. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) So, this, this is a podcast, we can't do everything. This is a radical oversimplification. But you have seen these two views that we just described present in Christian history. For example, maybe more on the Guy Mason side, the niceness, inoffensiveness side, you've had Christians who have said, look, the church's job is not politics. The state is its own sphere and the church is its own sphere. And a Christian's goal should essentially be to care about the church, to do ministry inside the church, to focus on the church and not worry about what's happening in the state. This has sometimes been called quietism. You see some of these thoughts in Anabaptist thought and later on Baptist thought. There's a number of places where these ideas come to bear. And we say that's the Guy Mason approach because, remember, he's the pastor of City on a Hill because instead of trying to be persuasive and make a case for why people in Australia should adopt his beliefs, he just was nice. He didn't try to make a case, persuade anybody. He didn't issue an argument. He just said, I'm going to be kind and hope this goes away. Yeah, but in his church, he has spoken about these issues. So clearly, he thinks there's a place to speak about it. It's just not on sunrise. Not in the public public square, not in the government context. Now, the other approach, maybe the Senator Hawley approach, I might call a Christendom approach. And it's the idea that Christians are called to take power, to take political power and to use it for the common good. Once you have the power, enact laws that are just and good and are for the common good and the flourishing of humanity. But the main point here is a Christian should be willing to fight, to take power so that they can change society. And I think a lot of people can hold that with sincere Christian belief because we do believe that Christian values would foster flourishing for everybody, not just Christians. And so shouldn't we want Christian values in our country? And how do you have Christian values in our country unless you have power? 
Now, there's also been a third view, which I would actually argue has maybe been the least common view in recent history. Some people would call this a transformationalist view, but it's the idea that we do live in a pluralistic world, and Christians don't expect to be in power in all circumstances, nor do Christians expect that they're going to define the moral order. Instead, Christians need to work hard with excellence, with high character, so that they can be put into positions of influence where they can influence government or journalism or whatever fields they're in for the sake of the good. They won't ever totally win the day. It's kind of the already but not yet thing. They know, hey, the kingdom's coming. We're not ever going to establish it here on earth. But their goal is to slowly over time plant seeds that transform culture. And you can find some people who are arguing for something similar to that perspective today. But the fundamental debate that everybody is discussing is about culture wars. It's about culture in general. How do we change it? How do we interact with it? Before we can talk about how Christians should operate within the culture war, we have to kind of define the term. So traditionally, what culture war has meant, or what a culture warrior is, is someone who is trying to fight within the context of media, government, Hollywood, whatever, to get their beliefs, their values adopted in society. And so you've seen, like Patrick said earlier, culture wars over feminism, ERA, AIDS, LGBTQ movement, all kinds of things have been the topic of a culture war. But the culture warrior fights hard for their beliefs to win the day. Yeah, and in reality, the term culture war is really just a rhetorical device. It's a way of name-calling people that you disagree with. In other words, if I don't like your views and values, Keith, I'm going to call you a culture warrior if you want to enact them. And I find this fascinating because what we're seeing is a kind of horseshoe effect. I'll explain. There's an evangelical conference on faith and history. And at this conference speaking were Kristen Kobes Dumay and Jamar Tisby, two people who tend to fall more on the left. And they were arguing that Christian historians have a job to advocate for justice. They want an activist orientation in any sort of historical work. Now, you can imagine someone on the right calling them culture warriors because they're trying to enact their values, their way of seeing the world inside of governments and other places. And they would hate that, right? I mean, that's the last <laughs> thing they ever want to be thought of as culture warriors. They think they are justice fighting warriors. for justice, you know, against oppression. They're doing what the church should always be doing. It's the people on the right who are the culture Well, and that's the fascinating part. While I don't think these people were quite as present at the conference, there are plenty of historians on the evangelical right who would actually agree with Kristen Kobes Dumay, Jamar Tisby. They would say, yes, our history should have an activist orientation. However, their vision of what that activism looks like is radically different (laughs) than Kristen Kobes Dumay and Jamar Tisby. They want to advocate maybe in favor of more conservative views of LGBTQ issues, of gender. They want to advocate against things like critical race theory. And they say, yes, as a historian, we need to be activists in our orientation. And of course, they're going to be called culture warriors. So what you mean when you say that culture warrior is a rhetorical device is that it is a way to slander your opponent and to say that you've got your eye on the wrong thing. You're trying to gain power for yourself. That's why you're a culture warrior. Jesus didn't recruit culture warriors, it is said. But it turns out that who a culture warrior is, is in the eye of the beholder. 
I think that's totally true. But here's the key part. By calling them a culture warrior, you are implying that their views and values aren't invited into the conversation. They're doing something they should not be doing. You should not be bringing your meaning, your values into this discourse. And by doing that, you're being a culture warrior. You're doing something that shouldn't happen. Now, here's what I want us to do. I actually want to slightly redefine what a culture warrior is because I think if we can change it from a rhetorical device that we use to slander people and just get more honest about what an actual culture war is, it helps us in the conversation. And the definition I'm taking comes from a guy named Chris Watkin in a book called Biblical Critical Theory. It's a fantastic book. Highly recommend it. It is academic and long, so. Private school alert. (laughs) Private school alert. Yeah, that's exactly right. But here's what he argues. He argues that a culture war is about meaning making. Anybody who's in a culture war is trying to argue for the meaning of events. What does this event mean? So an example will help illustrate the point. Let's talk about Drag Queen Story Hour, and let's look at the ways that people on different sides of the political spectrum make different meanings out of Drag Queen Story Hour. Maybe you're not familiar with this, but there are libraries, public libraries across the nation who are inviting drag queens to come in and read books, and parents are bringing their children to those book readings. Now, is that something that is good because what it's doing is exposing kids to people who are fighting against the over-restrictive sexual norms of our day, and therefore Drag Queen Story Hour is a positive Or is Drag Queen Story Hour brainwashing our children and teaching them to think in dangerous ways about biology and the differences between men and women and even opening them up to sexual exploitation? Well, two different people are going to have very different perspectives on whether Drag Queen Story Hour is good or bad. Who gets to decide? Yeah, and that's exactly what a culture war is. A culture war is over meaning making. Who gets to decide what Drag Queen Story Hour is? The thing that makes a culture war challenging is that it's not just who gets to decide, but where do they get to decide? Here's what I mean. Am I fighting to change the view of journalists? In other words, am I fighting for my meaning to be the meaning in journalism, in Hollywood, in Congress, in the White House. You see, that's where culture warriors want their meanings to come to bear. And if you think about it, we're all in this war. We're all making meaning of the events around us. And we all would like, I think, to some degree, for our meaning to be the meaning in some places in society. Yeah, let's go back to another example. And this is in England in the 1700s. And you have this practice of slavery. And England was very much involved in the slave trade. There would have been a lot of people, maybe even a majority of people who would have said, look, slavery is a universal practice. And it's the way the economy runs. And so as long as you don't mistreat slaves too badly, it's okay. It's not a moral evil. And then you would have had people on the other side who said, no, 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 this is a huge, huge sin against God. Because these These are human beings made in the image of God that you have no right to own and treat this way. Now you have William Wilberforce, who is in the British Parliament, and he is driven by his Christian convictions to fight against the slave trade, to bring it to an end. So what he's trying to do is convince his fellow citizens that the slave trade is wrong, that his meaning is the right meaning that we should all adopt. Now, my question is, is he a culture warrior? Well, 
I mean, if he's trying to fight for his meaning, you want to say yes. And yet we've all been taught that being a culture warrior is wrong. So we want to say that William Wilberforce is not a culture warrior. But you can see now the predicament (laughs) that we are in. Everybody has a meaning that they want others to adopt. That's exactly right. And, And that's why we said we needed to redefine culture war, because it helps us be more honest. If we can set aside the rhetorical devices and all the negative connotations, we come to a single conclusion, which is, first, is there a culture war? Yes, because humans are meaning-making creatures. We are all trying to make meaning of the events around us. And are we all culture warriors? Well, yes, unless you are just totally okay with your view of reality only affecting you and no one else, which, by the way, I would say is an unloving act. If you love your neighbor, you should want what's best for them. It would not be loving for you to say, well, if you want to have a slave, that's totally fine with me. I have no big deal with that. I'll you know, live and let live. No, of course, we want our meaning to be a meaning that is accepted more broadly than just ourself. Again, maybe it's on the school board. Maybe it's in Congress. Maybe it's with journalists. Maybe it's in Hollywood. There's different places where we do the culture war. But the point is, we're all in a culture war. And to some degree, we are all culture warriors because we're meaning-making creatures. So that brings us to how should Christians act within the culture war? Since there's going to be a culture war, how should Christians act within it? Specifically, what are the proper tactics? I mean, can we set aside the fruit of the Spirit when we're involved in political battles, or do we need to keep the fruit of the Spirit front and center? And the second question is, what's today's context? Because maybe, depending on the context, there needs to be a different approach that Christians take within the culture war. Okay, so I think the best place to start is actually your second question, today's context. The debate that's actively being debated over by Christians is this, are we in a especially vulnerable moment? Is Christianity uniquely threatened today in a way that it hasn't been historically threatened in the West or inside of America specifically? And this is really important because your context is, of course, going to shape your response to it. Yeah, just to let you know where we're going, and we'll unpack this a little bit more later, but some Christian thought leaders are arguing that because Christianity in America is under unique threat right now, that we have to fight in maybe unique ways that we haven't in the past in order to keep society from, I don't know, going down the toilet, right? From (laughs) literally just kind of falling apart, that this is a unique time and it calls for unique action. Is that true? Do we think that's right? Yeah, so let's get into the question, is this a unique time? And the article that is being discussed widely among Christians is by a guy named Aaron Rannon. I subscribe to Aaron Rannon's subsect, do you? I don't subscribe, but I have read his article several times. And so let's just try to lay out his position. He does, by the way, argue that we are living in unique times. And the way he does this is he describes American history as three different worlds. He calls them the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. You can guess which one we live in right now. And by those terms, he's talking about culture's orientation towards Christians, a positive view, a neutral view, and a negative view. So in his original article, he argued that before 1994, society had a positive view of Christianity and Christians. Being a part of a church enhanced your social status, and Christian moral norms were seen as the basic moral norms of society. Now, I just want to note here, he received some critique for this, which we'll get into in a second, and he updated on his Substack. He updated his framework to say it was between 1965 and 1994, and It will become obvious why in just a moment. Between 1994 and 2014 existed what he called the neutral world. And this is that society is not positive or negative to Christianity. 
Yeah. And then he says that from 2014 to the present, and he really kind of sees Obergefell v. Hodges, the case that legalized gay marriage as being the inflection point. That's 2015, that's 2015 right? But he so he goes up right before right that. Right before that period. He says that's when America shifts to a negative world. And this is a time period where being known as a Christian suddenly becomes a social negative. This is not going to add to your social status. And just as importantly, Christian moral norms are no longer the moral norms of society. In fact, they're viewed as a threat to the common good. So in the positive world, maybe you went to church to help develop business contacts because it would be good for you to be known as a church person, whether you believed it or not. Country club Christians. In the negative world, you want to hide that you're a Christian because if people think you're a Christian, they think you're a bigot or a racist or a Neanderthal, doesn't believe in science, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, closeted Christianity. Now, here's where Wren goes. He talks about how in each of these worlds, churches took on different strategies for engaging with the world that they lived in. So he's saying, look, different contexts call for different things. He said that in the positive world, Christians were involved in the culture war by just preserving the existing moral order. Yeah. You might think of the moral majority back in the late seventies and throughout the eighties, the Christian coalition. Yeah. The they 90s. called themselves the majority because they said, look, we represent what most people believe. Yeah, so that's how you operate in his mind in the positive world. Christians fight for Christian values and they expect to win because they're in the majority. Yeah, and then you move to the neutral world where being Christian is neither good nor bad. It's just neutral. And he says that the strategy that developed was seeker sensitivity. It was just trying to welcome people into the church in a kind of non-confrontational, non-offensive way. Yeah, so you might think of Bill Hybels in Willow Creek and the seeker sensitive movement, or you might think of someone like Tim Keller, who Aaron Wren respects. He says Tim Keller was perfect for the neutral world because he didn't want to offend people about political issues. He was just trying to show a third way. It's not right. It's not left. It's the Jesus way, and therefore he wanted to be inoffensive so that he could win people to Jesus. And now that we've moved to a negative world, Wren would say that Christians have yet to develop a response to this new reality. Of course, there's things like the Benedict option, which was advocated by Rod Dreher, which is kind of the, hey, Christians, we need to bunker down while the apocalypse happens, and then we'll come back stronger <laughs> than before we started. But his point is that in a negative world, Christians can no longer take those kinds of neutral policies. Hey, it's neither right nor left, the third wayism. No, in a negative world, Christians are going to have to fight. They're going to actively fight to establish Christian moral order because it's been lost. So one of his critiques, I think, if I understand him right, is that Christians, a lot of Christians, haven't made the transition from the neutral world to the negative world. They're still using tactics, strategies that are more appropriate in the neutral world. They haven't recognized that we now live in a world that is hostile to our faith, and we have to make some adjustments to kind of come to terms with where we are today. So we need to ask, does Ren's paradigm make sense of reality? And I want to name this. There's going to be listeners who hear this and they think, yeah, you know what? This does seem to be describing my experiential reality in some sense. And we'll circle back to that. But the first problem with Ren's thesis is this. He presents, even when he changes the date to 1965, he calls this the period of secularization. So he's saying, look, we weren't secular before 1965 and now we're in the secularizing era. The problem with that thesis is that secularization is nothing new. Throughout American history, secularization has kind of been like a roller coaster up and down. During the revolutionary era, about 10% of Americans went to church. It was one of the most secular times in American history. Our second and third presidents were not Orthodox Christians. So to suggest that secularization is new and that it requires these broad new tactics isn't entirely true. 
Yeah, and evangelicals have always felt under siege. So if you would have gone back and asked evangelicals in the 1960s— So the positive world. Positive world, right. Do you feel like your Christianity is helping you get ahead? I think they would have said, look, we've got the pill, we've got the sexual revolution on. No, it's hard to be a Christian now. Or if you would have gone into the 1970s, they would have said, no, we got this ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, that we're trying to fight. Abortion just got approved by the Supreme Court. There's a battle for tech. Books. If you went into the 80s and asked Christians, do you feel like you're in a positive position right now? No. I mean, there's an AIDS epidemic. The culture is becoming more accepting of gay relationships. And again, abortion is on the rise. So I'm not sure that Christians ever felt like they were in a position of privilege, even during Ren's positive world. Well, that's a funny thing. I just kind of like imagining getting into a time machine and going and finding Jerry Falwell during this supposedly positive world era and saying, hey, Jerry, would you describe this as a positive era to be a Christian? Of course he wouldn't. There's no way he would. The whole reason he started the moral majority is because he felt like Christian values were under attack. And he was, at the time, the definition of a culture warrior. And so if his point was that there was a different kind of culture war back then, a different orientation, I'm not so sure that he's not just giving us a redux of what Jerry Falwell was doing in his own day because he didn't see his own day as being positive. One of the problems is that we always tend to see this through our own perspective. And I think because white evangelicals dominate the Christian church, we tend to see this from a white person's perspective. But if you're a black Christian, what's your take on the positive world? <laughs> uh, how positive was it? Well, that was the major critique Aaron Rand took on the nose after his initial publishing, because he just said pre-1994. I'm not trying to psychologize the guy. I just have to say it's probably because he's writing for a mostly white publication that he just made the slight misstep of forgetting that if he had gone to Mississippi in 1954 and began to preach gospel truths about race and segregation, he would not have experienced a positive world. <laughs> <laughs> right. People who are coming along and saying that Jesus this unites us across races and that racism and bigotry is wrong. They didn't get a welcome reception. It wasn't positive to be a black Christian or an orthodox gospel preaching white Christian in that time. What it was positive to was a Christian culture that wasn't very Christian. Well, and we'll circle back to that exact point. What exactly is he talking about when he's saying culture's orientation towards Christians? Because if it's its orientation towards orthodox Christians, it is undoubtedly true that orthodox Christians on issues of race would have experience, not just a negative world before the Civil Rights Act, but after the Civil Rights Act. That's the thing that bothers me about his 1965 date. It feels like a rhetorical flourish, which suggests that after 1964, racism wasn't a problem, that having maybe modern views of race and segregation would have suddenly been accepted. That's ridiculous. Churches and organizations, schools, colleges, they remained segregated. These were Christian places, by the way, in many cases. They remained segregated until 1980. And of course, we can look at Liberty University and Bob Jones University and all those other places. So if you held orthodox views of race, even post-1965, you would not have found a positive world. So he seems to be talking about cultural Christianity as opposed to orthodox biblical Christianity. If you were a white Christian and you were willing to be quiet on race, at least overlook it, if you didn't want to fight over feminism, then it probably was positive for you. But if you took biblical stances on either of those issues and probably others, then it wasn't so positive. And if you were a black Christian, perhaps you would be shocked to find out that Christianity was viewed positively by the culture you lived in. 
And I think this helps us understand why Aaron Wren's view has gotten so much traction in certain circles. First of all, these are primarily white evangelical circles. And what he's describing is a particularly white evangelical experience. If you're a white evangelical, maybe up until 2014, you could expect some level of cultural capital associated with your religiosity. You could expect some level of status associated with your religiosity. You could expect that you wouldn't be excluded from the halls of power as a result of your religious beliefs. But starting in 2014, 2015, something experientially did shift. In some ways, it feels harder to be an evangelical who wants to have influence in areas like business. This is the Australia example that we already laid out. It does feel like something's changed, but now we're getting to the nub of the issue. Who has it changed for? Well, it's changed primarily for white evangelicals, for black evangelicals, for Latino evangelicals. I don't think there was ever the expectation of having the level of power and influence in society that white evangelicals always expected. And so as certain white evangelicals feel as though they're losing grip of the reins of power, that's why they're saying now we live in a negative world. It's not that the world became negative. It's just that you lost something that most people didn't have to begin with. All right, so just to be clear, there has never been a positive world for Orthodox Christians of all colors in America. That has never existed. And when we act like it did, what we end up doing is neglecting or dismissing or minimizing that we live in Babylon. That's what Peter says about the Christians in Rome, that they live in Babylon. Now, Babylon didn't exist as a place anymore, as a government, as a structure, but it did exist as kind of a descriptor of what all empires are like. And what Peter is saying is that even though Babylon is gone, it's never gone. It's always here. We see it come up again in Revelation 13, where it animates the powers of darkness. So when we say that there's a positive world, at any point in American history, we're neutralizing what Peter said. We're neutralizing what Revelation 13 says, which is that we live in Babylon. The powers of darkness are animating every nation to some degree. It doesn't mean that they're pure evil. You have Romans 13 as well to counterbalance it. But the reality is for Christians, we aren't called to establish a holy nation. Peter calls us a holy nation. Christians are the ones who are called to live as a holy nation in Babylon, which means that we never expect to live in a positive world. Well, let me correct that. We do expect to live in a positive world when Jesus returns. It's ridiculous to say that there haven't been times in American history where Christians have been viewed more positively. Of course, that's true, but it's never been a positive world unless you're talking about cultural Christianity, white cultural Christianity in particular. But if you think that there was a time of positive world for Christians, what that makes you want to do is fight to get that back right? It kind of justifies in some people's minds a set of tactics that say, I want to make America great again, right? (laughs) Well, that's the funny part because what Aaron Rin did was kind of a Christianized version of MAGA. Well, I've seen a sign before that says, make faith great again. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of what, make the church great again. He has the same framework as Trump. There's this nostalgic sense of a past that we can get back to. But again, you're making the broader point. If you think that you live in an especially negative moment, it could, potentially justify for you radical measures. If you think like Eric Metaxas does, that we are currently living in the lead up to Nazi America. I mean, he continually compares what's happening
happening in America to what happened in the 1920s and 1930s in Germany. If you think that's what's happening, then all of a sudden you see yourself as Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you are ready to go to extreme measures to defend your nation against the evil progressive Nazis. I agree. How you frame this question is incredibly important. So what we're advocating for is that Christians have always been in exile, always been in an odd relationship with the government where we want to be transformative through our presence and through building churches and gospel communities. We are happy to participate in government, but we never have the expectation that the government or the culture is going to be on our side. Therefore, we never have any reason to panic and freak out when things start going the wrong way. And we never have reason to give up the fruit of the spirit and how we conduct ourselves within the culture. Okay. And that finally takes us to the second question that we laid out much earlier. We just answered the question, what time is it? What's our context? And I hope we've made a convincing case to you that the idea that we live in a negative world is both right and wrong. We do live in a negative world and we will always live in a negative world. Always have, always will. Always have, always will. This side of Genesis 3. So as it turns out, we would clearly argue that this moment doesn't call for a radical new set of tactics, which was our second question. How do you wage the culture war? We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. There was an article in First Things by a guy named James R. Wood who wrote about why we need to leave behind the approach of Tim Keller. And the article is very complimentary of Keller. Wood says that Keller was a huge positive influence on his life. And yet he sees Keller's approach and tactics being wrong for our present moment because Wood thinks we are in a negative world and therefore our tactics have to change. He thinks Keller's emphasis on being kind and gracious and inoffensive no longer works today in our moment. And he cites as an example of that how Keller was invited to Princeton to be given an award and be able to give a speech. An honorary degree. And then when the students at Princeton began to protest because of Keller's approach to women and LGBTQ issues, in other words, this should sound very familiar to what's happening in Australia recently, Keller was disinvited or he was told that he couldn't get the honorary degree, but he could 
still give a speech. And so what Wood's point is, is look, you can be as inoffensive and kind and gracious as Tim Keller, and yet the world is so negative, it's going to persecute you. James Wood's description of Tim Keller, I'm not sure if it's accurate. I'm not sure I would describe Tim Keller as inoffensive. I mean, after all, if he was that inoffensive, why did he lose the honorary degree? Well, there has to be some level of offense to cause something like that to happen. But Wood's critique keeps going deeper. He makes the point that advocates of winsomeness, when it comes to public witness, speaking out about public political social issues, he makes the argument that they tend to punch right and coddle left. And the idea is we can trust people on the right to come and follow Jesus. So we can punch them. We can hit them. And in fact, by doing that, we might win some people from the left because we are willing to speak truth to power. Yeah, I think that's right, that there is a willingness to bend over backwards to be gracious to people on the left, but be highly critical of people on the right. And that's what Wood is tired of because you're ending up punching people on the right who are supposed to be on your team, all fighting on the same side of the culture war. And he's just worn out by it. And on the other side, he's warning that when you call the left, what you end up doing is allowing their views to take deeper root inside of the public square. And so their views become the moral order of our society. So by being conflict diverse, by punching to the right, by coddling the left, we end up allowing the left to define good and evil and to set political and cultural agendas. But you asked the question earlier, does Wood have the right perspective on Keller's view of winsomeness? And after Wood's article appeared in First Things, David French came to Keller's defense. And essentially, what he said was that the fruit of the Spirit must always be the Christian standard for behavior, that there's never a time that allows us to abandon speaking words of humility and kindness and grace. There's never anything that should give us the freedom to lie or be sarcastic or judgmental or arrogant. And what French points out is, are we sure we live in a negative world when Princeton, even after all the hullabaloo, still invites a pastor to speak to its students on campus. Are we sure that's a negative rule? I mean, can you imagine Paul being invited to speak to the Roman Senate? And, and so <laughs> David French is saying, let's call a timeout here on negative world stuff. I think compared to Christians around the world today or Christians throughout history, we still live in a time where Christians have it pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think French would agree with us. The world is a negative world, but there are degrees of negativity. And we have to admit the fact that while today may be different than yesterday, it's a heck of a lot more positive than being a Christian in the first century who might literally lose their life for pledging their allegiance to Jesus. So the debates go on. French talks about fruit of the Spirit. We can't leave these behind in public discourse. And then Samuel James releases a fantastic newsletter where he argues that, by the way, James R. Wood, I think you got Tim Keller wrong. Winsomeness is not inoffensiveness. He argues kind of alongside French that winsomeness is more about our tactics, how we speak, how we treat people, than whether or not we're willing to say the truth. And he argues that, look, Christians do need to speak speak truth about these public issues. We just can't be jerks while we do it. And if speaking truth about these public issues costs us our jobs or costs us our lives or costs us our family members or whatever it is that we're worried about losing, we kind of have to have a so be it attitude because that's what Jesus called us to. He told us that following him was like taking up a cross, not like taking up a flag and taking back the capital. Jesus was winsome. He always spoke in the power of the fruit of the spirit. He always said the right thing at the right time in the right tone. And yet he got crucified because people were offended 
offended by him. So we can't abandon winsomeness, but on the other hand, we can't expect it always to be rewarded either. Yeah, so Keller came along finally and wrote his own response <laughs> in mere orthodoxy to this entire debate. And in kind of classic fashion, it's remarkably short and succinct. But he makes the argument that Christians need to be three things in the public square. We need to be persuasive. So we have to win people to our arguments. We need to be affectionate. We need to show affection. That's the fruit of the spirit, being kind, gentle, all of that. And he also says that we need to show resolution. We need to tell the truth. And he makes the point that maybe the Guy Mason approach, that was the Australian pastor who gets on the show and just says a lot of nice things. He says, look, that's all affection, but there's no resolution and there's no persuasion. No one was probably won over by what he said, and he didn't say anything resolute. He says on the other side, maybe the Josh Hawley approach that we laid out earlier, that side is all resolution. We should speak the truth, but there's no persuasiveness. There's no desire to couch it in ways that people can hear and understand and win them over. And there's also very little affection. We're just going to speak the truth. And however we have to say it, that's the way it goes. And Keller goes on to argue that in the public square, Christians need all three of these things. We need to persuade, which means making convincing arguments. We need to be affectionate in our speech and we need to be resolute. We have to say what the truth is, come what may. So following Keller's paradigm, if you're going with the resolution only, in other words, speaking the truth only, then you are going to be either the anti-woke crowd that is always going to be coddling right and punching left against your enemies and excusing people who fight for you for using inappropriate language or... Being unkind, dismissive, jerks. Making fun of people. You're going to excuse that. Or you're going to be on the other side of the problem, and that is the pro-woke crowd who will coddle left and punch right. And so you're always going to be making excuses for Christian progressives. You're going to be calling other people names. They're going to sound different. They're going to be things like racist and misogynist, but you're still doing the same thing. Yeah. And so what happens is if the only way we engage the public square is resolution, you end up with the horseshoe effect, which is kind of where we started this whole thing. Neither one of them are persuading, right? That's the similarity between the ends of the horseshoe is that neither is trying to persuade. They're both just name calling and trying to enforce their will. Yeah. And on the other side, there are plenty of affection only approaches. But again, they also don't persuade. They might be well liked. They might be appreciated, but no one is one to Jesus. No one is one to their beliefs and views. And so I I hope what we're helping you to see is that if you think the two options are the Christendom, you know, let's take America back for God approach or the quietism, let's just let the church be the church. Both of them have some serious, serious problems, which beg the question, is there another way? Is there another way for us to engage with politics? And I think the answer is yes. There's actually a rich and deep tradition that we can draw upon to engage the culture wars, the wars over meaning-making in our society in different ways. And we're going to call that the way of exile. But this is something that's drawn from multiple traditions. It's drawn from Augustine and his book, The City of God, which is fantastic, but Keith's never read it. (laughs) Private school alert. It draws from the black church in America, which has always had to, in some sense, see itself as exiles from American power. But perhaps most importantly, the way of exile is drawn from Jesus, the way that he lived in the world, the way he called his disciples to live as exiles, and how they drew that from the stories of Daniel and his friends and all the Israelites who lived in exile in Babylon. 
So to maybe explain the way of exile, it would help for us to take a concrete question and wrestle with it through the perspective of exile. And here's the concrete question, which the people who are resolute are going to disagree with us. Here's the question. Should evangelicals avoid partisanship? Resolute people are most likely going to say, no, we shouldn't because we need to take power. And the only way to take power is by being very actively engaged in taking the reins of either partisan group in the United States. Now, on the flip side, if you're talking to the quietest, the people who say that the church is its own sphere and the state is its own sphere, they're going to say, yes, you should avoid partisanship. Because if you do that, you're going to get entangled and dirty and things that you don't want to get entangled and dirty with. Just avoid partisanship altogether. And again, we're going to propose that maybe there's a totally different way of thinking. Now, the way of exile would say, no, you don't need to stay out of partisanship. But you have to have very realistic expectations, tempered expectations about what kind of change there's going to be. Now, let's think about this through the paradigm of Daniel. Daniel, when he meets with the king, he always says, may the king live forever. So here's Daniel. He's partisan in the sense that he's part of the Babylonian government and has a leadership position, but he doesn't expect to change the king's opinion about destroying Jerusalem. And yet he stays faithful to his job. He does his job with excellence and with integrity, hoping to be a light where he can. It's actually hard for me to imagine being in his shoes. You're serving a guy during the period that he destroys your hometown, and you have to continue serving him and his family members into the future. So yes, like you just said, there's this partisan aspect of Daniel. He is a Babylonian. He's working for the Babylonian Empire. And yet we know, because he is desperate to return to Jerusalem, he's desperate to rebuild Jerusalem, that he's had to make some compromises, we might say. And so I would argue that Daniel understands at least seven things. And I just alluded to the very first one, which is there's a lot of gray. We actually don't know how he navigated 586 BC with Nebuchadnezzar going and destroying Jerusalem. He had to live in a real gray spot, I am sure, at the moment. You have to have tempered expectations. Keith, could you maybe give an example of that today? Well, the whole abortion debate has gotten messy with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I'm very pro-life. Patrick and I are very pro-life. And yet, if you kind of go down this abolitionist, abortion abolitionist, so there's no exceptions whatsoever for abortion, you can make a moral philosophical case for that that I very well might agree with. But it's not going to go over well politically. And in fact, you might end up making that abolitionist argument with no exceptions and finding that you are really creating more abortions because you're creating more permissive abortion laws of people reacting against your extremism. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we saw. We saw all these abortion laws get voted down. And in many cases, it's because they were very extreme abortion laws. If it had been a more moderate abortion law, it might have passed. Now, I'm not moderate on abortion, but if you're asking me the question, do I want a very radical abortion law, which doesn't ban any abortions at all to fail? Or do I want a more moderate abortion law to succeed and significantly reduce the number of abortions? Well, my goal is less abortion. So I'm going to have to live in the gray of saying I can't get everything that I want in this world. So I'm going to have to compromise and get what I can. And you're never going to convince me that Daniel rose to the positions of power in both Babylon and in Persia without having to just be comfortable in the gray. And yet there were some lines that he just wouldn't cross. Remember, he said that he would not eat the food from the king's table. He drew a line in chapter one. His buddies refused to bow down to the golden image. He refused to pray to King Darius. So there's gray, and then there are some lines that I think you have to be there to know where those lines are. Yeah, of course it requires discernment. And one example is clearly no idolatry, although idolatry is an expansive concept. So it's sometimes hard to figure out, is me doing this committing a form of idolatry? 
But I think this is where this finally lands with speech ethics, how we speak. The Bible is very, very clear about how we should speak as Christians. We should speak with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's how the Bible calls us to speak. And so we draw a line in the sand. If my political job requires me to break biblical speech ethics, I won't do it. I won't cross the line. Third, Daniel believed that God is ultimately on the throne. And I think when we believe that, not just say it, but really believe it, it helps us put our time in perspective. That This isn't a time to panic. It's not the worst time ever. Christianity is not on the brink of disappearing. Jesus is on the throne. He's promised to build his church. And we can have a sense of confidence that comes not from the circumstances we find ourselves in, but from Jesus himself. Maybe that helps free us to be involved in the political process, because we know that what happens now isn't ultimate, and that frees you from anxiety, and it helps you out tremendously. The fourth thing that Daniel does is he does his job faithfully, and he does it with excellent character. Part of the reason why Daniel is promoted and brought into places of influence where he actually can change the Babylonian world is because he does his work very, very well, and he has absolutely no corruption. There's a part where literally everybody's trying to find the skeletons in Daniel's closet. They can't find any. They can't find any. And that tells us that as Christians, if we're going to be involved in politics, if we're going to be in justice, our character and our excellence in our work matters. Fifth, Daniel understands that Babylon is not Jerusalem. He doesn't expect Babylon to live by God's values. In fact, in Daniel 9, when he goes to confess sins, he confesses the sins of Israel, not the sins of Babylon. It's not because he didn't know the sins of Babylon. He knew them very well. He knew all the cruelty and the vanity and the idolatry and the immorality, but he doesn't confess the sins of Babylon because he understands these are not God's people. Yeah, and six, this is kind of a subset of what Keith just said. He understands that the community of Jews, the friends who were all living together in Babylon, that was the place where the kingdom of God was living. He wasn't trying to take Babylon back for God. He wasn't trying to turn Babylon into a Israelite society. He understood that the true holy nation, that was the Israelites who were exiles living in Babylon. Okay, here's the one that I think is the most remarkable. It's the seventh one, and it's just about the paradox of power through suffering. When are Nebuchadnezzar's eyes open to the truth or Darius's eyes opened? It's when Daniel and his buddies choose to suffer for the gospel, for the sake of truth. After they're thrown into the fiery furnace, that's when you see Nebuchadnezzar saying all these things about how God is great and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the God that everybody should follow. Same thing when Daniel thrown into the lion's den. When he's willing to die and give up his life instead of fight for his rights, that's when the king pays attention and takes notice and starts saying, hey, everybody needs to worship this God of Daniel because he's the true God. And this actually carries through the visions of Daniel at the second half of the book where things get real psychedelic. It's my favorite part. I like it. But again, again, (laughs) that's what I feel like when I, I feel like I'm on shrooms when I'm reading that. In the visions, again and again, we see this theme that holy ones... Sometimes it's the son of man. Sometimes it's these holy ones who are Israelites. Sometimes it's not totally clear, but that there's these holy ones who have to suffer or later on an anointed one, a Messiah who has to suffer before the kingdom of God can come. Now, this is paradoxical because when we think about how to take power, how to establish the kingdom of God, you know what I hear very few people talking about? Laying down your life, suffering well giving of yourself for the welfare of your neighbor. And yet in the exile paradigm, this is the key, the quintessential path to having power. It's laying down your life, which, you know, that kind of sounds like someone else I've heard of. 
So Jesus, who was crucified and then exalted to the right hand of the Father, and that's the pattern that we are supposed to follow. So Christians will gain the power that God wants them to have to the extent that they're willing to lay down their lives and suffer and maybe even give their life for the sake of others. Yeah, so if we run that Daniel paradigm through the question, should evangelicals avoid partisanship? Should we be involved in partisan politics at all? Well, I think we start getting some answers. We should be involved in partisan politics, but always as exiles right? I understand where my true and deepest allegiances lie, and yet I'm called to work in Babylon for the welfare of Babylon. And we just have low expectations. We don't think that a political party or a president is going to bring in the kingdom of God. It seems like so many Christians think if we could just get the right people elected, things would be so much better. Really? I mean, really? (laughs) Do we still believe that? I mean, goodness gracious people. I'm not trying to be condescending, but I really mean it. Just read some history. It never works out the way you think it will. If we're comfortable with gray, we also have to know that there are lines we can't cross. We have to be willing to have the courage to challenge our own partisan groups from the inside and to challenge society. There are lines that we can't cross. Yeah, I love the verses in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell the king, hey, look, you can throw us in the fire and God will save us, or he may not save us, but here's the deal. We're not bowing down to your image. We're Yahweh men. You know, that's who we are. And I just love that. And sometimes I think we just get a little perspective when we read Christians, not just like black Christians we talked about earlier, but Christians from other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So I was reading about these Chinese Christians who, when you worship at a house church in China and not a state-approved church, you can get yourself in some big-time trouble. And so these Christians, Chinese Christians were just saying, here's how we handle it. If somebody comes to our door and says, hey, I'm going to take away your house if you keep letting this church meet there. And we just go, well, okay, but the house belongs to Jesus. We All our stuff belongs to Jesus, so you'll have to deal with him. And, you know, these communist guards, they don't know what to do with that. And so they'll say something like, well, then you're going to have to sleep on the street. And then they're like, well, okay, then we'll trust Jesus for our daily bread and our daily bed. And then they're like, well, we'll beat you. Well, we'll trust Jesus for healing. Well, then we're going to throw you into prison. Well, then we'll start churches. And I think there really are churches in Chinese prisons because when Christians get sent there, they just start talking about Jesus. And well, then we're going to kill you. Okay, then I get to go be with Jesus. And so there's this sense that they're not freaking out. They understand God is in control. Jesus is on the throne and things aren't going well for them right now. It's a super negative world, it turns out. But they're going to be faithful. They're going to speak kindly. They're going to love people. And we know that oftentimes the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's what's happening in China right now. The church is exploding as Chinese Christians are willing to lay down their life. Will American Christians follow and learn from them? Uh, Well, I suppose that remains to be seen. Uh, Continue with the way of exile and partisan politics. Look, you never mistake your party for the kingdom of God. Keith already said that. But there's this other side of it as well, which is that you understand that the church community, that's the place where the kingdom of God is coming to life. Peter calls the church a holy nation. Again, that means that our calling is not to build a different holy nation, but instead to focus on allowing the church to grow in holiness and allowing the church to be the place where the kingdom of God is being expressed in generosity and kindness and love and understanding that the party is never going to be that thing. And we've alluded to this. Let me just say it one more time. You follow Jesus. Power comes through suffering. He's hoisted up on the cross, and that's his enthronement. He is enthroned next to God as he's put on that cross and declared 
king of the Jews. He turns down the devil's offer to have all the power in this world and instead says, no, I'm not going to try to take the crown before the cross. I know the cross comes before the crown. So cruciformity, having your life shaped by the cross, that is the way of the Christian life in a positive world, a negative world, a neutral world, every world. A McDonald's world, whatever world you're in. <laughs> First century, 21st century, it doesn't matter. B.C., A.D., Black church, white church, Asian church, Latino church, it doesn't matter. Cruciformity should mark Christians. It absolutely should. And I think when we take all of this together, we get a very coherent picture. It's what Patrick Schreiner has called subversive submission. And I think that's how we have to be oriented in the public square and in partisan politics. Politics in general is subversive submission. Yes, I might submit to the powers that exist. Yes, I'm going to play within the rules of the game in many ways as they're established, but I will constantly subvert them, not by taking up my axe and taking power, but instead by taking up my cross. We subvert through love. We subvert through self-sacrifice. We subvert through generosity. And that's how, if you want to change culture, that's how we'll change cultures. What Keep just said, cruciformity is how it happens. But Patrick, I can hear people yelling into their AirPods. They're yelling a question or they're upset because they feel like we have neglected some things in the Bible. And what they're saying is, don't you remember that Jesus flipped the tables? Don't you remember that he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs? Don't you remember that John the Baptist spoke truth to King Herod and was killed for it? Don't you remember that Jesus said that Herod was a fox, which was an insult? I mean, so Jesus used harsh language. So you're telling me use fruit of the spirit and all that and your words shall be shaped by that. But you seem to be neglecting that in some occasions, Jesus went off on people. So can't we go off on people? <laughs> uh, part of me wants to say, I wish, as that's a temptation in my own heart. You have to understand something fundamental. You are not Jesus. Nor, by the way, are you a prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking scripture. There are some major differences between you and them. So here's a few things. Yes, Jesus went off. But here's the deal. Jesus, when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, he could see inside their heart. So he knew for a fact that what he was saying was true. I can't see inside your heart, so I don't get to call you names like that. I don't get to challenge you that way. Number two, Jesus didn't have sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. That exists, and Jesus had it. When he got angry, when he flipped tables, it was always out of righteousness. But here's what's interesting. In Galatians 6, Paul's talking about correcting people and helping them, and he warns, he says, and do this without anger, lest you be tempted. So Paul seems to understand that because we aren't like Jesus, we're sinners, we might get angry in the process of confronting people or confronting cultures, and that anger may or may not be righteous, but it will almost always lead us sinners into more sinful temptations. And so again, yes, Jesus can do that, but I'm not Jesus because I'm not sinless. Lastly, I just want to say this, the prophets, they were inspired by God. Now, I have God's spirit in my heart to guide me. I am not speaking God-inspired words. I'm not writing new scripture. And lastly, we have to remember that we are exiles, okay? Yes, Jesus spoke some challenging words, and so did John the Baptist, but they spoke it in many ways to the house of Israel. They spoke it to the people, whether it was King Herod who represented himself as the king of the Jews, or it was the Pharisees who represented themselves as the populist movement that represented the people. He was speaking to people who identified as God's household. And the level of directness that we have inside the house and the level of judgment that we have inside the house is always going to be higher than what we have outside the house. It goes back to your point about Daniel. He confessed Israel's sins, not Babylon's sins. So to start treating Babylon the way that God calls us to treat the church, that's a huge mistake. 
So here's where I think we are left then, is that Christians and the church at large should care about the world we live in. We should seek justice. The prophets call us to that. The civil rights movement was right to seek justice. We are right to seek justice in every area of our society, but never in a way that compromises the fruit of the Spirit. Even if we have the right end in mind, and that is God's kingdom, we realize that that's not going to come without the king. We can't fight a political battle to get there. We can't try to seek to take power and enforce our will on others. We instead, we instead die to ourselves. We live faithful in our community. We speak the truth in love, and we oftentimes suffer for it. And that is the way that the church will have influence in our culture. We will not win our culture culture by trying to gain power, but we will perhaps, by God's grace, win our culture by willingness to speak the truth in love and die to ourselves and suffer. In other words, what we're calling the way of exile, we've been called to love Babylon, to work for the welfare of Babylon, but to know that we aren't Babylon, to know that we are a holy nation that's been called by God for his purposes in the world. If our political engagement makes us look more like Babylon than it does like Jerusalem, there's a serious problem. If we think that we can just ignore the world and ignore injustice and seek to do nothing to transform society, well, then I don't think we've met the call to love our neighbor. We're called to be exiles. Let's live in Babylon. Let's love Babylon. Let's know the problems with Babylon. Let's challenge Babylon. Let's have character. Let's do our work with excellence. And let's know that ultimately Jesus is on the throne. And what he calls us to do is lay down our lives for our neighbors. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.